Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Al Williams. And we're your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. And this is episode 94. So if you don't know who Al Williams is, go check out episode 57 of the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. Yep. Um, he is a writer for Hackaday, does lots of, you know... Um, other things. Other things like <laughs> ham radio, FPGA development, stuff like that. So um, I think a good primer would be to listen to that episode and then come to this episode. So I'm just going to jump right into it. So Ali Williams is back, and we're going to be talking about FPGAs this time, which is actually, the, I think, the topic we ended on on the last podcast. Well, and the last time Al was on, we kind of discussed, like, we really need him on a second time to go through more. And I, the, the, the amount of information that's locked in, in this guy's head over here, we could probably have him on like seven times and be talking about interesting things every single time. So this is the FPGA Mega Podcast. Yep. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, boy, that's a lot to live up to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess, uh, you know, and, and it's kind of interesting. One of you guys is, is kind of cognizant on the FPGAs and one of you isn't, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so it'll be interesting to see what kind of questions we generate. But... You know, I've kind of been evangelizing FPGAs for a long time. You know, they're relatively, and I say relatively, relatively new, given that, like, capacitors and resistors are really old, right? And even microcontrollers are really old. So, like, when I was in school, there weren't any FPGAs. And so I kind of picked up a lot of this later in in life. But traditionally, it was a big-ticket item. You had to go get special computers, and you had to get software with very expensive licenses, and that has changed over time, and really not even that recently. But, you know, a lot of people looked at them at some point and went, oh, well, I'm not going to spend $20,000 to get into this. I'll just not worry about that. And that has really, really changed, but a lot of people still don't realize that. Well, and it's also not just the infrastructure you had to purchase to get uh, up to them, but just back then the hardware itself was very pricey. Right, and now it's very affordable to get development boards. So... I always explain this to people who haven't had any exposure to it at all. And, you know, FPGA, by the way, is Field Programmable Gate Array. So if you look at the history of it, you know, there was a time when you, and I guess you probably still can, where you could go to a fab and say, hey, you've got this IC and it's almost finished, but let me tell you the last parts of it to wire up. That's really expensive still because you're basically committing to a big production run. Heaven forbid it doesn't work. You know, that's very expensive. And, and they, people still do that, but that's really not what we're talking about. So the field programmable part is you can program it yourself. And the way to think about it, uh, I'm not sure if they still make these or not, but used to be at Radio Shack, for example, you could go get a kit for your kid or if you were a kid yourself, and it would say, like, uh, it was a 60-in-1 electronics project, right? And it would have all these parts and have little springs on it. And they say, okay, if you put the wire from this spring to this spring and that spring to that spring and this spring to that spring, you'll make a burglar alarm. And then if you take all the wires out and put them in this different way, you made an AM radio or whatever the things are. That's kind of what FPGAs are in a nutshell is it's a bunch of logic gates and a big sea of gates. And sometimes they're all the same. Sometimes there's some that are a little specialized. And we're effectively defining the wires that go between them to make up different things. And you, what can you make? Pretty much anything you could make with digital logic. So I guess the point to that is, is is it's pretty flexible. But if you stop and think about it, you think, well, is that really how I'm going to do that? Is sit there and define connections between all these different pieces and a, a big board? The answer is really no. You, I guess you could do that theoretically, but there's a lot of more interesting ways that we do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, it's all a different way of thinking. I always tell people is, 
you know, when you write code on a microcontroller, you're writing code, and it's a sequence of events. Whereas in FPGA, you're you're not writing you're writing code, but it's more like you're writing the hardware description of what this thing is going to do. So I spent a lot of years with a former employer trying to convince a customer that that is not code, and it isn't. I, I'll tell you what the answer is, and, and we'll talk more about this later. But it's really a requirements language. So you're really dis what you're going to do is you're going to use a language that looks a lot like a programming language to describe what you want. Then the tools are going to go look at that and go, ah, oh, you know, that's a seven-segment decoder, or that's a counter, or that's a bunch of flip-flops, or that's this special function block I have over here that does magic things. And then I'll infer those things, and I'll make up all the connections for it. So it's not code in the sense that you say, well, here's a statement, and that statement executes, and then this statement executes, and then the next one executes. It's not like that at all. You're basically describing requirements, and that requires a very different mindset, which I yeah. think what you're getting to is a lot of common mistakes you see when people start out is they say, oh, I'm writing code, I'll put a loop in there. Well, there's no loop because it's not executing. Okay. Well, and, and you're, you're physically defining internal connections, right? Uh, at the end of the day, I mean, it interprets them into connections, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, you don't say, um, you know, uh, what, what logic element block um, B goes to C. You don't say that way. I guess technically you, you could. could. You yeah, could. You um, could. Some kind of madman would do that, though. Well, speaking of madmen, <laughs> <laughs> there is this tremendous video on YouTube. I'll have to dig up a link, and you can put it in the comments or whatever, but where this guy uses the Xilinx FPGA editor, and he does that. He's like, oh, you look at the design here. I've messed this up, so I'm going to move this wire from here to here. And he's doing it live, basically, mm. on the on the FPGA. Um, I, you know, I'm a pretty stout guy, and I'm not doing that. Did so <laughs> it, it was very impressive to watch. I'll Did he do that just to get around compiling it again? Well, compiling the the code again? Maybe, code, maybe or, or maybe he was just trying to show us what a tough macho hacker he was. I don't know. <laughs> now, that was a number of years back, too, so it could be, and we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, it could be that, you know, on his 386 computer, which was modern at the time, and I'm, I don't remember when it was, but whatever, yeah. that it was some 12-hour compile cycle, so maybe that did make sense for him to do that. These days, wow, it's really hard for me to think of why you would do that other than just, you know, why did, there's a lot of things you do that you couldn't explain to somebody Masochism. why you do. Yeah, you just want. <laughs> well, it could, yeah, it could be. It takes a couple hours because I've 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 done projects that take you know fifteen minutes, and they're not super complicated stuff. Right. So if you do something that's you know, like defining a a CPU that's custom one off with some peripherals and stuff, and it takes a couple hours, and like oh, I needed to change that one little bit, and you actually knew how it compiled it out. Then yeah. That's still, it's pretty stout. Like I say, I'll have to find that video, but it's it's pretty bad. So anyway, I think the point is, though, you are defining those hardware connections. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I always found interesting when I first started picking this up, I'm like, oh, I don't care about any of that hardware language. You know, that's that's stupid. I'm just, I'm a schematic guy. I'll just draw my schematics. And then you start trying to do something like a microprocessor, and you realize, gee, I don't want 88 pages of schematics. You know, it's, it's too hard to keep track of. Now, were you drawing those gate level or is it like logic blocks where you, it, you had a predefined ALU? You can do both. Okay. Most of the vendors will have some way to do that and you can draw a schematic. You can also make a hierarchy of schematics so you could say well I'm going to define my own ALU but then I'm going to use it in different okay. places. They'll have blocks too but I don't recommend that at all and I'm going to give you the example of why I don't recommend that. Look at say a seven segment decoder. You got a seven segment display 
uh, you're going to you know get a binary number, four-bit number in, and you're going to say, well, that's a zero, so I got to light up these segments. This is a two, I light up these segments. Any of us could go sit down and figure out how to do that with a bunch of AND gates and OR gates and inverters. And it would probably take you 20 minutes, and then after you made two or three mistakes, it'd probably be an hour and a half to get it all working, right? Mm -hmm. Well, using a hardware definition language, and we'll talk about that later, but the languages we're talking about, you know, I would do basically like a switch statement in C. I'd say, okay, here's a binary number. If it's zero, do this output. If it's one, do this output. If it's two, anybody could look at that and go, oh, that's right, or oh, wait, you, you know, this is the wrong segment. You lit the wrong yeah. one up, dummy, you know. And, and I'll compile that, and guess what? I'll get the same code either way, more or less, uh, the same configuration for the FPGA. Hmm. So uh, to me, that illustrates how quickly you could do something that would be really painful to do in schematic. It's not hard, but then imagine doing, like, I've done some 32-bit CPUs. You know, boy, schematics for that. I remember I used to work on the 68,000 stuff for Motorola years back when that was current, and that was pre-having everything on the computers, and we had these huge tables with stacks and stacks of papers for the schematics on them. I'm just not able to do that myself. I'd rather just describe it in eight, eight or ten pages of, of quote, code, unquote, yeah. right? So. Yeah, I actually remember when I was a kid looking at um, I can't, it was like a newspaper clipping or something from uh, from Intel, and they had a picture of a ginormous room that they had the you know I think it was like the schematic for one of whether uh, probably the Pentium at the time, and it was just like that it was the entire Pentium schematic printed out, mm -hmm. and they were they had like two hundred engineers sprawled over it like looking at it and making sure everything was right. We used to crawl on the table. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we'd get up on the table and go find something because the table was that large that you couldn't just bend over it and see to the middle. So you'd actually get up on the table and crawl around. Wow. So, you know, that's the kind of thing you do. So you really have two primary choices when you, well, there's a lot of different choices you make, but, but really most of the world's using Verilog, which is very C-like, or VHDL, which is very Ada-like. And... You know, there are other things, other languages you can use. Those are the ones that are really marketable. So if you ever think you're going to get somebody to pay you for it, you want to know one of those two. Um, there are some things like Spinal HDL, which I, I want to say is Python-based, but I won't swear to that. There are actually, I think, a couple of Python-based ones um, and things like that. Those don't have a lot of commercial acceptance. So, I mean, if you're just doing your own thing and you like Python and that's the way you want to go, great. And a lot of them look like they have great features, but... You know, it's kind of like, well, I can learn C or I can learn some obscure language nobody's using. Well, if it's just for you, who cares? But if you really want to market or publish, you probably want to go with one of those two. My experience has been like the aerospace business tends to use VHDL, and a lot of the academics use VHDL. I find most of the people who are doing this in the garage or something, they're going to use Verilog because they probably know C and it's kind of familiar. And Yeah, the syntax is close. It's similar, yeah. yeah. And there's been a lot of work lately on taking – C language and other languages and compiling them to FPGA. Yeah, and I was wondering how Python would work in that. I guess I'm going to have to look it up yeah. because Python doesn't really lend itself to doing bitwise style functions, which is kind of what you do on a FPGA. Yeah. yeah, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I think it's libraries that use a Python style, maybe written in Python. Yeah. I'm sure. And again, I'm not an expert on those, but, but there's several out there that have gained some traction and some popularity. Um, I think the the real interesting thing about that, though, is if you look at the languages like Verilog that are C-like, because even though they're C-like, they're not C. 
And if you look at the things that compile C to an FPGA, they are very limited. You know, you'll say, okay, I can only do certain things. And again, you're really kind of describing what you want and it's inferring. It'll look and say, oh, that's a loop of 10,000. So I'll go and break this up. I can do 50 at a time or something. And for some styles of how people use FPGAs, that's actually a pretty good deal. So it's kind of interesting. The FPGA market, if you're looking at it from outside, you kind of think, oh, it's FPGA. So it's kind of like electrical engineering, right? What do electrical engineers do? Well, that depends. Some of them do power stations and stuff. That's not me. Yeah. Some of us do PC boards, which is you guys. Some of us do FPGAs. Some, and it, it's really hard to take somebody that knows, say, you know, how to design a substation and say, here, design this uh, ECL logic circuit they probably aren't going to remember how to do that if they ever knew to begin with and vice versa i'm not going to go just design a, a substation so if you look there's the fpga markets actually fragmented like that too so there's people like me who will build cpus for basically research uh, i actually have two well i have a patent on some uh, cpu features that are for a particular type of cpu and all that was developed on on fpga uh, you have people who are just replacing logic for some reason, and we'll talk about that. You've got people who actually use them more or less as boutique CPUs. So I'll say, okay, my vendor's going to give me an ARM core, or maybe the ARM's built into the fabric, like a, a Xilinx Zinc, yep. for example. Uh, and But I need 18 32-bit PWM channels, uh, and I need a D to A converter with these characteristics, so I can't buy all that off the shelf. So I'll just go get these modules and put them in there, and I'm basically just doing a tinker toy approach, right? Add mm -hmm. this module to that module to that module, push the button, and I've got a microprocessor that meets my specifications. How does it work? I don't know. You know, I just picked up a bunch of modules. Uh, there's a couple of things. A lot of the vendors have pretty notable infrastructure for that they'd like everybody wants to be the app store right yeah. everybody wants to be the uh, apple i store uh, app store to say oh you know i need a cpu i need a pwm generator i need the uh, manchester encoding you know block or whatever i don't know that anybody's really succeeded at that to generating a marketplace but that's the that's everybody's pie in the sky uh, there's also some open source stuff like opencores.org where you can go, and if you go browse that, that really will give you a good idea of what FPGAs can do because there'll be CPU cores and Cortic math libraries and communication stuff, you know, different types of modems and, you know, like I say, Manchester, biphase, whatever you want, all out there that you can get open source and kind of throw together like that. Um, and then some people are using them for parallel processing, and that's probably where the C to, to FPGA part gets really interesting. So it's not that I couldn't do it on a microprocessor, but it's just like you were talking about earlier, how the things don't execute at one time. That's what really makes it different than using a microcontroller. Mm -hmm. And I always find a lot of the projects you see on the web, especially if you're just starting out and you're looking for some easy projects, they don't show a really good reason to use the FPGA. So, oh, I built a traffic light with an FPGA. Okay, that's educational. If that's your first project, excellent. But if somebody really said, let's build, an FP, uh, or build a traffic light, your first response shouldn't be great. I'll go get an FPGA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that with an Arduino and yeah. that's fine. And, and if you can do it with an Arduino, that's cheaper, it's better, it's faster. Um, the advantage you get, like we're talking about PWM, that's a great example because if you, and we did a, we did a piece on Hackaday where we did a, a PWM generator on a cheap FPGA. So if I generate one PWM signal on a microcontroller, that's easy. You know, assume I don't have hardware on the, on the processor to do it. 
if I generate two, that's probably easy, three. But at some point, I'm going to run out of time to keep updating them. And yeah, I can use interrupts, but I'm still going to run out of time at some point. Maybe it's 50, maybe it's 100, I don't know. But at some point, I'm going to run out. On an FPGA, as long as I can keep adding stuff, as long as I'm making timing, they'll all run, and one will run fast, and 50 will run fast, and 100 will run fast. Yep. Because it's all parallel hardware. It's not some brain going step one, step two, step three, step four. Oh, whoops, I'm out of time. It's just building hardware. Yeah, I think actually Steven ran into that issue with his uh, 18-mega 328s on his synthesizer. That's right, yeah. So, so it actually came down to being able to calculate exponential functions uh, very quickly. So the 328 needed to do sequential processing, and uh, I reached the limit of what a 16 megahertz little processor can do, which isn't actually that hard to get, but I really wasn't asking much for it. It was reading an A to D, doing one or two calculations to it, and spitting that out D to A, and that wasn't fast enough in some situations. Well, and a lot of people do use FPGAs for DSP-type work for that reason because it's very easy to get a fixed deadline. And if you think about it, you know, I always used to use the example of uh, you're monitoring some supercritical process, nuclear reactor, let's say. I don't know if I say nuclear reactor on podcast, does that bring yeah, the, NS, the NSA come after us or anything? <laughs> <but> <laughs> you know, what was the movie? Bomb, 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 right? Don't, don't say bomb. Uh, but if I were monitoring, say... 50 things. Well, on the microcontroller, maybe I can be smart and monitor eight of them at a time, or, oh, I'll get a 32-bit processor, I'll do 32 of them at a time, but I still can't do probably all 50 in one gulp. So there's some point of time where I'm looking at one group of them, maybe it's just one at a time, maybe it's 32 of them at a time, and then there's some finite amount of time before I'm looking at the next set. And if I'm doing 300 of them, then there's going to be more finite pieces of time before I circle back around and get to that first one again. On the FPGA, as long as I've got I.O. pins to support it and enough fabric in there to support it, if I monitor 100 things and it takes me five, milli, you know, five nanoseconds or five picoseconds or whatever the short amount of time to propagate through the logic, they're all going to get that time. Yeah, because you basically would, at oh, what would be synthesized, would be like a ginormous OR gate right. that's got 100 inputs. Yeah. Instead of what would be basically on a microcontroller you would have the tri-states going into a mux that would probably go into a um i think if you were doing like port you would be doing like port detection changing yeah. and so you'd have to hit a hardware flag some deep register that the cpu doesn't always look at and then whenever it's going through its you know normal thing it would eventually go oh that flag was set let me go figure out which pin it was all yeah. of that and takes it, more and, and it's more gotta time. Go look. Yes. I mean, even if you use an interrupt on a pin change, like you suggest, which is a great idea, yep. you, if you want to identify it, you still got to go. Yeah, you still got to check everything. Yep. And with the FPGA, it's just there, which is the same. I could make the same argument of saying, well, if I went and got a bunch of chips and did a custom circuit for it, because guess what? That's what you're doing. You're just doing yep. it on a micro scale inside the chip instead of. Yeah. You know. Well, um, and, and one of the things that I, I've noticed with FPGAs that I think is super cool is the fact that you, you sort of, if you take the mindset that it's one item, you, you kind of get it wrong. Uh, if you look at it as in it is a grouping of whatever you want it to be, I mean, you can literally cut the chip into however many chunks you need and based off of whatever your pin count is. And it can be doing two entirely independent things that have no correlation to each other. Like in a microcontroller, if you program two separate things, they're still connected by whatever 
program register that it has to run through and it has to think about them. But with an FPGA, you can you can slice it however many ways you want. You can put a hundred Arduinos on an FPGA. You probably could. Yeah, but yeah. FPGA, that's, that's going to be the next big hackaday. There you go. How many like, Arduinos can you synthesize? Yeah. It can fit on the head of a pen, is that it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you say that, too, because a lot of the larger FPGAs, and this is pretty advanced technique, but you can even reconfigure parts of them on the fly. So you can say, okay, you know, I'm in this mode. I'm, I'm During the day, I'm collecting data, let's say. So I've got all this stuff that I use to collect data. And then at night, I'm going to reconfigure part of that to go do communications because I'm going to squirt it up to a satellite or whatever I'm doing. Mm. Um, that's a pretty advanced technique, but it's possible to do. And that's actually one of my research interests that I've kind of stalled on at the moment. But I have an architecture for a CPU that makes it very simple to do this. I wrote about it in Dr. Dobbs years ago. You can go look it up. Uh, but I want my goal would be to have a C compiler that says, okay, I'm looking at this program that Parker wrote, and I think I could have really optimized the heck out of it if I had three floating point units, four integer units, and two memory access units that did auto increment. So I'll pull those out of my library and I'll build the CPU <laughs> that I'll run this code on. Then I'll generate the code to run on the CPU and I'll get these amazing results compared to just running it on some generic processor. Hmm. Um, again, that's probably not project number one if you're getting into FPGAs, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's an interesting idea. It's a little advanced. It's a little advanced. So, you know, I think that's a, thing though you can you can do as much or as little and, and i don't want to dissuade anybody from saying oh i'm going to go do a, a traffic light on fpga just so i can learn how to do it sure of course we all build stuff that's silly but again if you were doing it commercially that's not your first choice um i you know and it, it's interesting to me though that so much of what we do see on the web is stuff is like really why did you do that on an fpga that doesn't make any sense and there's only so many first step projects, you know, there's only so many Arduino LED blinkers that you need on the web before you say, okay, people know how to do that. Let's go to step two, step three. Yep. Like um, uh, a couple of projects I've done on FPGA, I do a lot of like taking video data in at one format and then reformatting it in some, some, some other way, like VGA or mm -hmm. I'm starting to work on HDMI stuff. Um, which is its own entirely different beast because it's all serial data, um, like I square C streams and stuff. But it's, FPGAs are really good at that because you basically you're taking one bit in times 28 of your 28 bit wide bus, and you're doing exactly the same thing to each bit. So yeah, it's that parallel processing yeah. we talked about. You know, on Hackaday, and I'm, gosh. Somebody's going to be mad at me for not remembering this, but there's a guy <laughs> we post about a lot, and, and his his uh, name has Hamster in it. I can't remember the rest of it. It's not just Hamster, but he's done a lot of interesting stuff with HDMI on FPGA. So if you go look on our site, he's done quite a bit of. Yeah, uh, I have to look that up because that's stuff. it's kind of like one of those like VGA is actually kind of easy because you kind of just you know for like eight bit or sixteen bit you just have a you know. A resistor DA ladder because that's good enough for the speeds you're doing, and then you just have a H sync V sync, and that's it's pretty easy. Like you can just look at a timing diagram and go, that's how that thing works. Mm -hmm. Whereas HDMI, you look at a timing diagram of that, and it's just like just explodes your brain. And I'll just apologize profusely for not remembering his name if he hears this, but you know it's interesting you mentioned that. I was just looking at that. Uh, have you guys seen Mist M I S T, which is a FPGA board? 
that's made to emulate old computers. I say emulate, that's not really the right word, but you know, basically so you can say, well, I'm gonna make a Commodore 64, uh, or they got a lot of arcade games that you can put on there. And they're not software running on them. You know, they're literally hardware implementations. Of it's, a, it's a hardware description of the game. Yeah. And they just recently updated that or came out with a second version of it called Mister. And it's a it's essentially a, a Cyclone board, which is a brand. You mm -hmm. know, it's Altera's FPGA development board with some daughter boards on it. But one of the things that board has over the original one is that it will take the output, which normally would have been VGA only, and will scale it out to... HDMI because nobody can you know nobody can find these weird VGA ancient screen resolution CRTs? stuff. Yeah, the <laughs> stuff that'll sit there and go, well, that was 38 hertz, and, you know, this weird resolution. But oh, I don't you care. mean actually um, an arcade monitor, 15, 15 hertz, whatever that. Yeah, whatever they yeah. were, and so uh, you know that turned out to be an impediment for a lot of people as they couldn't get the monitors to drive it. So that's the kind of thing you can do with an FPGA, and it's it's a pretty good use of it, I think. Uh, and those are fairly inexpensive. Again, the costs on all this stuff has come way down. Yeah, way down. It, it's like um, we were looking at some um, CPLDs, which is just like a smaller. It's not really a smaller version of FPGA, but that for the conceptually sake of. Conceptually, it is. Yeah. Conceptually, it is. Um, and you can get them for like, I think a couple of them, like for um, under Altera, like they're like, you know, they're running like four or five bucks now. So. Well, one of the nice things about it, and the, the market's really fragmented on this over the last few years, but it used to be one of the big differentiators between an FPGA and a CPLD was generally the CPLDs would remember their configuration. And so the, if you're not familiar with that, you know, these chips start out and they basically are nothing. They're blank slate. So every time you start up, something's got to happen to make that have your configuration in it. The wires jumpered right. The wires, exactly. The wires going between the springs on the, the to make the burglar alarm or whatever you're making. <laughs> the the CPLDs, a lot of them traditionally had some sort of flash memory involved with them, and it's not flash memory in the sense of, well, here's some memory and I'm going to copy it over. It was just literally flash cells that said a one here means this wire is made from yep. here to here, uh, or or whatever it is. The FPGAs generally had a RAM-based technology. And so you would typically have some other device, either a serial double EEPROM or a CPU that would say, okay, I'm going to power that guy up. Here's a bit stream to send him. He's going to load it into his RAM. And that means you couldn't start up real fast. But a lot of that technology has kind of blurred now. So there are FPGAs that just stay configured with Flash or mm -hmm. other technologies. Uh, and so that's not the best differentiator anymore. But you're right. Those are very inexpensive and, and for small logic circuits, you know, the kind of things you used to use like a, a PAL or a GAL for, yep. you would probably use a CPLD. And, and going on that flash memory, that's actually the hardest thing with um, actually maintaining. Because I have a couple products that I've developed that use FPGAs. And the hardest thing is actually maintaining a piece of the flash chip that's still, you know, in stock somewhere. Yeah. Because they, it seems that they cycle a lot in terms of, um, you know, just in, in if they are in stock and then they'll just change the part number randomly. And so you have to go find which one actually will work with that Altera, you know, um, FPGA. Because Altera has got one that's like, this is the one to use. I can't remember the part number. It's like EPC4 or something like, something like that. And But they want like 15 bucks for the flash memory and your, your FPGA is $11. Right. And so you, there's a lot of like third-party guys that will make, 
you know, flash mem or EPROM. They're basically EPROMs that are, you know, the um, that are equivalent. But then they will build. They'll probably, you know, do like twenty thousand or how much they're going to do, and then you got to go to the next guy that's got, you know, similar stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. the hardest. That's the hardest thing that is in maintaining. Yeah. Well, you know, you're talking about Altera, and I think that's an interesting thing too. There's a bunch of different companies that make FPGAs. They're all subtly different. And they all have their claim to fame for one reason or another. I actually learned on Altera. It was kind of interesting. I tell you, I was kind of self-taught with that. But it's such a different way of thinking that I just couldn't get that last hump. And I finally took one of the distributors, I think it was Arrow maybe, had a Altera class here in Houston. And I said, I'm going to go take that class. And, you know, 90% of what was in that class, I was like, yeah, I know that. I know that. I really just needed to talk to that guy for like five minutes and say, I got two <laughs> questions. And if you could answer those questions for me, I'm out of here. But you couldn't do that. So I sat yep. in class all day. And I, got, I was like, oh, I see. I got it. So that was what I actually learned on. But I usually, most of my commercial stuff now is done on Xilinx. So, question it. What were yeah. those one or two questions? Or do well, you remember? Well, that's a good qu I don't know if I remember. I was actually thinking that when I said that. I know one of them was I couldn't figure out how things got configured okay. just from reading up on it. And remember, this has been a number of years back, so mm -hmm. there's a lot better stuff on the web now and everything. But I couldn't quite figure that out. And, gosh, I cannot remember what the other one was. I think it was something to do with the clocking. And I want to talk about that later, too. But I think the clocking, I had some confusion about how clocking was routing and once it was explained to me, and it's one of those things like, how do you learn to tie your shoes? Now I can't really remember yep. what I didn't know. But or riding a bike. You don't know exactly how you remember how you rode your bike. Yeah. You, it's not like you can say, gee, I don't remember how to balance, and I figured it out. But, but it was two questions like that. They weren't real hard questions, but I just had a roadblock against it. Um, so that was, that was uh, really helpful to me. So Xilinx, I do a lot with that. Commercially, back in my old job that I had for many years, we did a lot of microsemi because we had radiation hardened stuff in space. So that's important, you know, because you don't want stuff just bit flipping all over the place. And of course, that's really expensive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then you start talking big dollars for those devices. But one of the things we've been talking about on Hackaday a lot in the last couple of years is uh, Lattice. And Lattice was really an early player in that space, but they, they don't have the name recognition that like Xilinx and Altera has. But Two things really have drawn us into the lattice camp a lot. They've got this ice stick, which is basically got a little one up there. US, yeah, it's yeah. a little USB key. You plug it in. It's an FPGA development board. It's not super powerful, but it's you know for something to do your traffic light first project with, or or even something more powerful than that. It's great, and I don't remember the cost on them. I'm sure your buddies at Mauser would be glad to tell us, but I, they're they're well <laughs> under twenty bucks. There's a what a subtle plug. There, yeah, I right? know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I figure if we don't get T-shirts from Mauser, Xilinx, Altera, and uh, Lattice out of this, we're doing something wrong. Um, but you know, they're what maybe twenty bucks, maybe ten bucks, yeah, somewhere like in that. that range. They're not hundreds of dollars. I, and actually, I'm going to do another plug. Is I got one for free from the DigiKey like twitter wish thing a couple years back so yeah i gotta find out about the twitter wish thing i don't know anything about yeah that, it's like so. every year around christmas time you can like tweet them at and what you want like and a maserati then, maybe you think i got a <laughs> shot now you gotta find the digikey part number it oh, might well, be maserati dash nd <laughs> <laughs> quantity zero you know when you, when you can make a joke Lead time about, four weeks when you can make a joke about the dash nd suffix on uh digikey i know you're spending too much time ordering parts right? <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> That's funny. Um, so it's really inexpensive. But here's what's really cool, and we did a whole series on this on Hackaday uh, with the videos and everything showing how to build it up and build something useful out of it. But they have their own tools, and it used to be the tools were very expensive to license. Now most of the vendors give them away for free, and they're of varying quality. Yeah. Now, granted, if you want to go to Mentor Graphics and plop down your 20000 a year or whatever those licenses cost, I'm sure it'll be better. I've used some of those tools. They're great, but I'm not, you know, personally, I'm not paying $20,000 to build my traffic light. Yeah, I think the Altera one, um, the, the big thing you get when you pay for the license is you get multi-core processing, Yeah, which is doesn't matter when you're building your traffic light, but when you're doing something ginormous, yeah, having two Well, cars. and that's from the vendor, but there's yeah, also the vendor, all yeah. sorts of other people that do tools like Mentor Graphics. Oh, I, I didn't like know that. that. Yeah, and, and they support the big families, but they're big. Yeah, it's just like PC board layout, right? You can go buy Cadence or you can go get a cheap package. Is Cadence better? Absolutely. Is it cheap? No, right? So, uh, but it was funny in the articles that we did for Hackaday on the ice stick, I set out to install their software under Linux, and it was just painful. And if you go back and look at that article, I mean, I actually outlined it. I said, well, if you don't want to read about my troubles installing their software, just skip ahead. But, you know, TLDR, it was tough to, uh, it, it was tough to, to get through. But I went through like three or four strikes where it was like, okay, I want your network card, but I assume it's ETH0. Oh, I don't have an ETH0. Okay, I want the, you know, it was just one comedy after the other. And finally, after three or four strikes, I just said, you know what, too bad. And there's actually a very impressive open source tool chain for that family of FPGAs. Uh, it only does Verilog, so if you want VHDL, that's not interesting to you. And if you um, go grab it, it's called Ice Storm, and you go grab that, it installs just like everything else installs that's open source under Linux, and it works great. App get installed. Yeah, Ice storm? Uh, probably. I don't know if they've got it on a repo, but I mean, you know, it's it's not it, at worst dot make, you know, make yeah, exactly, slash yeah. config or whatever, you know. So that took 10 minutes and then I was up and running and I got that working and, and that's what we used for that uh, that series. So if you really wanted to get started, you know, 10, 15 bucks for one of those free software, install it, you're off to the races. And then we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. But then the question is, do you really need, even need to spend that? Yeah. And, you know, I know you're not a big fan of the simulation stuff. Well, I just haven't – my only experience with the simulation stuff is back in college. Yeah. And it was, like, pulling teeth. Um, it was just easier just to, like, write the Verilog and hit compile and – well, compile in quotes and, <laughs> you know, yeah. see LEDs blink, your, your traffic light going. But, yeah, um, I think I think the, the big thing with uh, simulation – um, you'll probably explain some more about it, but is like a lot of times I'll have the FPJ and then some other thing attached to it. And how to get that other thing that's attached to it into the simulation is kind of, that can frequently be difficult. Yes. Yeah, it just <laughs> depends on what you're doing, but yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I think it's always like, you know, you can simulate, you can, you can go visit Paris on Google earth. Mm -hmm. You know, you can look at it and you can see all this stuff, but if you've ever been to Paris, you realize, gee, that really wasn't a very good experience for some reason. It's a lot <laughs> different somehow going for real. So there's some cachet, I think, to saying, no, I got the $20 board and I'm watching the LEDs blink. I don't know why. You know, there shouldn't be any reason why. I guess it's like dating, right? It ought to be just as good simulated, but it isn't. <laughs> um, oh, that could be. The, oh, no, 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 no. This is, that could be the next thing is like. 
Are we going to have to cut this? No, 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 no. <laughs> you, you, take, you take that thing you attach to the FPGA and you just attach it to your the simulation. Yeah. So the simulation outputs something and then you plug that thing in. And, and you know, there are most of the vendors have what they call integrated logic analyzers or some other nomenclature, you know, some other name they've yeah. made up where you basically can build a logic analyzer into On, the yeah, FPGA. It uses some memory and stuff, yeah. Yeah, it eats up a little bit of the FPGA and then you can sit and debug real time like that. But historically, the the real development cycle is you'll go write your code in Verilog or VHDL and you'll simulate it first. And, you know, there were a lot of reasons for that. Like, remember I was talking about way back you'd go to a semiconductor maker and say, hey, go finish this chip up for me. Well, you probably should be really sure it works before you commit to buying 10,000 of those at very expensive prices and then get them back and, oh, well, I forgot this. That's a bad answer. That's the kind of thing that makes you have to get your resume together. Um, so, <laughs> you know, normally you'll simulate, and that simulation's pretty coarse. It will treat the language like a programming language, and it will it'll do things to simulate the parallelism, but it's really just simulating the the effect. You know, this goes to here sure it does and that goes to there sure it does at that point when i'm satisfied it's all working i'm going to go do and it depends on the vendor what they call it but essentially i'm going to compile it uh there's a couple of different euphemisms for that translate and then the place and route step will actually say okay i've i've generated this from your high level description of a seven segment decoder down to logic elements then on the logic elements i'm going to do a place and i'm going to do a map rather I'm going to say, okay, I know that on the FPGA I have these resources, so I can do what you want by using these resources, and then I'm going to place and route. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to pick this particular resource, I'm going to run this wire from here to here, and I'm going to run this one from here to here. Uh, at that point, I can simulate again, and the vendors have really good simulation libraries for that. It takes longer to do the simulation, but it's timing accurate. So if you say, mm -hmm. well, that signal is going to take 18 picoseconds to go from here to here, at some temperature, that'll be on average accurate for that part. Probably 25C. And exactly. <laughs> and well, I think on a lot of them, you can change the temperature. Even. Okay. You, know, you can say, I want to operate at 100C or whatever you're going to do. So that's a more sophisticated thing. Mm -hmm. I generally don't do that step unless I'm really trying to tweak something and analyze something and look at the edge cases and the margins. But the first simulation is really handy, you know, just to see that I got some, I didn't just do, because you know how it is, you're going to do anything complicated, yep. you're not getting it right the first time, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Um, and, and that's kind of the normal workflow, if you will. From there, you know, we were talking about the double EEPROM memories, a lot of times the FPGAs can just take the load right from the computer using some sort of dongle. Today, that's JTAG. usually a JTAG, yeah. yeah, it hadn't always been, but usually it's a JTAG now. And that same JTAG and then program the configuration device when you're ready. Yep. But for debugging, you usually won't bother with that. You'll just blow it into the FPGA, you know, do whatever you want to do, and then blow it again because you're going to change it again. And usually a lot of times we're talking about that um, the logic analyzer that's built in, that you can sometimes put into it with the um, built-in tools. That, that communicates over that JTAG as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you get, you know, so you get all the nice PC tools and you can set your triggers and you know, when this happens and the stock price goes to 50, the trigger the logic <laughs> analyzer, right? Uh, so, you know, and it's one thing, too, we were talking about the accuracy of the simulation going like 18 picoseconds and things like that. That's one of the things that uh, it was actually good for me to have come in before all this, I think, is I've got a pretty good education in just classic digital design. And 
one of the things that you see is very crucial to doing successful FPGA designs is doing synchronous logic. And so there'll be a clock and there'll be specialized resources on the FPGA just to distribute the clock. And that maybe sounds funny, but the FPGAs now, some of the bigger ones especially, have so much real estate on them that the propagation time of a very fast signal going from the top left to the bottom right of the die is significant enough that it'll mess up circuitry trying to talk to each other across mm -hmm. that diagonal. So there's all these special resources for getting the clock everywhere. And what you'll do is because, you know, if you didn't have that, what you'd have to do is say, okay, my alarm system for the nuclear reactor, you know, here's all the signals that can come in and they take 18 picoseconds, but my inhibit signal comes in in 22 picoseconds. So, oh, what am I going to do about that? I got this couple of picosecond difference and how do I do that? The, the design with a normal synchronous logic is going to use an, a, a, a flip-flop for that. Yep. And that flip-flop's going to be clocked, and it's going to be clocked slower than the 22 picoseconds. So everything gets to the flip-flop, and then you go, okay, is everybody ready? Yep, boom, and you're going to go to the next one. And then every step cycle, you go look at it again. And that way, well, if one of them didn't really take 18, it took 17.5 and it took 18.2, it doesn't matter as long as you're going out further. So that's why it's important that the tools can look at that and say, okay, I'm going to operate at this temperature Here's my worst case time, and I'm going to make sure, and it'll warn you about that. It'll say, hey, buddy, your clock's too fast. That's called not making timing, and if you do anything significant, you're going to mm -hmm. run into that. And then there, that's actually one of the harder things to do is say, okay, I'm not making timing. i got to go figure out how to break things up so that I make timing again. Hmm. So it's actually a really cool kind of puzzle. If you like solving puzzles, it's kind of interesting. So, so I'm actually curious about um, power draw from FPGAs. Uh, is there a way to calculate based off of your configuration how much juice it's going to yank? Yes, most of the tools will do that now. And it's, it's actually a really good question because historically FPGAs drew lots of power, right? Because they're basically static RAM devices. Mm. Uh, because some of that technology has changed, there are now FPGAs that are pretty low power and depending on what your definition of low power is, you may or may not agree, but <laughs> yeah. you know, re relatively speaking, low power. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, that's a lot of why you would pick one particular family of FPGAs over another, is do I really want speed? Do I really want power? Do I really want lots and lots of logic cells? A lot of the FPGAs now will differentiate themselves on special functions. So like we talked about digital signal processing, a lot of FPGAs have special function blocks that do like, multiply, add, accumulate, or whatever you call it. Or they'll it. have like a, they'll have a DMA Built section in, in there. Right. Yeah. Barrel shifting. Barrel, yeah. Th so there's all sorts of specialized things that they might put on the FPGA that might make you go, oh, that would be great for my application. I need that. And in fact, because so many people marry these with a CPU anyway, and a lot of people will get a CPU core and eat up some of their FPGA with it, that's actually been a real trend lately is to just get them with an ARM or whatever processor built right on the die. So it's not that the FPGA has a, an ARM in it. There's an ARM, you know, and then there's some FPGA fabric. Uh, again, best example of that is that Xilinx Zinc, which yep. is really cool. A lot of And the tools for that are excellent because you do that co-development where you essentially, it's almost what I said except you're the compiler, right? When I said you could compile and say, I want this CPU, it's not quite that sophisticated, but you can say, okay, I want a chip that's got, you know, two D to A and a barrel shifter and all these other things as I.O. devices, and they're hooked up to the different ARM buses, 
and then now I'm going to go do my code development, and that's all in one IDE, and it's all integrated, and the debugging's all integrated, which helps with your problem, oh too, yeah. is how do I get these external devices into simulation? So, um, but I guess the other thing I was going to mention for simulation, and if you go look on our Hackaday series that we talk about this, too, is, so, you know, even though it is better to date in person instead of simulate, and it's better to go to Paris in person rather than simulate, uh, you can, in fact, do everything through simulation. So if you go download the Xilinx tools or the Altera tools or iStorm or whatever, there are ways to do at least that first level, if not the second level of simulation, and you don't have to have any hardware whatsoever. Like you point out, maybe that's not going to let me simulate my external device without writing a lot of code. So it might not be convenient, but certainly for doing the traffic light, I could do yeah. that with nothing except well, simulation. And uh, in my in my case, you can actually just look at what the FPGA is outputting and go, oh, okay, that's what my external device is expecting. Right. Yeah. And, and the way you do that normally, the normal workflow for that is you'll actually write a test bench. Yeah. And a lot of those test and test bench is just a fancy name for a piece of the same kind of code you're writing that gives it test cases and looks at the output. So the simplest ones will just display the output, but you can also say, okay, if I put a one in here, I expect a five out here or whatever the cases are, and you can automatically go through and go, yeah, that passed, that passed, that passed. Hey, wait, that didn't pass, that failed. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a pretty common technique. But if you don't even want to install any software, and that was one of the things we do on the Hackaday series, is we use a, a website, it's called edaplayground.com. And I really like them. They've got a lot of the EDA being electronic design automation. Uh, they've got a lot of these FPGA tools for both Verilog, System Verilog, and VHDL, uh, all sitting there in a web browser. And so no install, doesn't matter, you know, go get a Chromebook and you can go log onto this website, write your Verilog, write your VHDL, write your test bench, do the simulation, look at the output of the simulation, and you can use some pretty cool tools that would not normally be available to you unless you were spending money. And they also have a lot of the free tools on there too. Now that's no good for doing something specific, right? So if you want to go target Xilinx later, I mean, you can still take the code out of it, obviously, but it's not going to help you pass that first simulation point. Yep. Uh, but that's really cool, especially like if you're working with students or if you just want to play around with it on a weekend, instead of saying, well, let me go kill four hours trying to install the, uh, the uh, lattice tools like I did, you, you can just go over to that website and off you go. I don't even think you have to log on unless you want to save stuff. I think if you want to save it, you do have to give them a login. But, you know, it's one of those things unless you're too paranoid to make a free login, which some people I mean, are. Just copy and paste into a local text file. Yeah, and you can do that too. But, you know, <laughs> but you take my point. You can yeah. log in and there's yeah. some advantage to that, but you don't have to, I don't think. so. Cool. So that's kind of, I don't know, that's kind of the brain dump on uh, getting started with FPGAs, I yeah. think. So... I think we can go even further with getting started is actually doing the hardware design. Mm -hmm. So I first started doing FPGA hardware design. Like I tried reading all the, like if you ever tried to look at the documentation for let's say a Cyclone 4 Altera device, which is like when I started, that was like the normal, like, you know, run of the mill FPGA they had. Um, and it's like 3000 ish pages of PDFs. Um, and so I actually, what I actually did was, and I, I started looking for like, is there an open source project I can just look at of how to hook one up? And I didn't find one. And so I actually went onto eBay and found a breakout board mm -hmm. and then asked the seller, I'm like, hey, do you have a schematic I can look at? And they just gave me a schematic. And so <laughs> that's how I wired up my first FPGA board was just like copy, 
copying how they wired it up, you know, because you got to supply them at least the old ones. Um, you have to give them a uh, you have to give them I/O voltage, which is what their tri-states use to talk to the outside world. You have to give them a core voltage, and sometimes they even have a sub-core voltage that's even deeper, I guess. Mm-hmm. So. You know, that actually triggered me on what one of my questions was to the Altera guy. (laughs) (laughs) That did. So you know what it was? It was the setup of the I.O. pins. Yeah. Because, you know. Oh, pin mapping. Right, the the constraints. And so I just couldn't get that through my head was that, okay, I said, well, here's my output cue. Where does that show up on the pins? And the answer appeared to be just at random, you know, and that obviously wasn't the right answer. And so I had to learn. It's a little easier now because there's more tools depending on the vendor. But you had to make a file that said, okay, my signal called Q goes to pin 72, and I want it to be a CMOS output, you yep. know, going back to your I.O. voltage stuff. And once you had that file set up, and now there's some GUI tools that will make yeah, that some, file for yeah. you, uh, there wasn't at that time, then that was the other part I was missing is I couldn't figure And, you know, that would be a killer if you had to go relay out your PC board every time you rebuilt and go figure out where it decided yeah, well, to that'd put That'd be them. brutal. No one would use them. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the, the one I had um, that got me, because I, I, I figured that stuff out, was when I started using, like, um, differential signaling. Whereas on a FPGA, you can you can fake differential signaling by just driving two I.O. pins and saying one's an inverse of the other. Or you can, most of them have built-in hardware to, to do it. And so you find one pin that also uses another pin that's paired with it. And so you actually have to go down the list and say, oh, these are the ones that are actually paired in these certain ports. And so you have to give them, you know, we were doing uh, LVDS for LCD laptops. So it's like 1.5 volts instead of 3.3. So you gave, you had to give those ports different voltages than the other ones because the other ones were talking to, you know, your your USB device and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's, it's it's a different animal than, and than just a normal microcontroller where you just give it 5 volts and it's happy. Yeah. Well, at least most microcontrollers. Well, and you know, the constraints will let you do things too, like say, well, I want this piece of circuitry close to this piece of circuitry because I'm afraid of the clock mm-hmm. stuff and things like that. Um, there's a lot of stuff we haven't really touched on. I mean, you know, for example, on the clock, you don't want to take the clock in and use it as part of the logic signals because then it destroys its clockness, if you will. Uh, you know, I mentioned there's a lot of special clock resources. Well, if I start bridging it onto my regular resources, that kind of ruins it. It's really interesting. A lot of the bigger chips now will have uh, some sort of either a, a, like Xilinx, for example, they have a delay locked loop. Some of them will have multiple delay locked loops. And commonly you'll use that to say, okay, like I've got a 10 megahertz oscillator, but I want to step that up to 200 megahertz because that's what I want to run the FPGA at. But a more interesting use of it is the ones that will have like four in different parts of the chip and they can actually be synchronized to say okay I know the clock's going to be late coming here so I'll synchronize up and I'll start the clock early Mm -hmm. I'll actually predict that the clock's coming up so that my clock will come up at the same part as time as the other part and the other part of the chip will come up or I can delay you know so they'll basically work it out to where they all come at the same time so getting into those kind of clocking issues can be really challenging also anytime you've got more than one clock you know you're trying to cross clock domains most common case of that is like reading a push button you know where the Mm -hmm. it's asynchronous on the outside so what happens when i hit right at the edge of that clock well will you i don't know but you could right and certainly you will over time Uh, but even if you're going between different clocks like if you've got say a uart running at some frequency 
and then you want to go into some higher frequency domain there's a lot of interesting things you need to figure out to be able to successfully do that without making unreliable designs so a lot of things to dig into if you like solving puzzles and figuring stuff out sounds extremely complex well it can be but it doesn't have to be you know it depends again traffic lights not going to have that problem right yeah so it just <laughs> it's like anything else those problems are complex anyway it's well not that the FPGA a high sampling fpga inside of a uh, $100,000 uh, oscilloscope will have those kind of issues, right? More than, well, just depends, but yeah, more than likely. <laughs> more, right? more likely, yeah. More than likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, it, well uh, even stuff that simple, like um, like I was reading data off a old Game Boy, and I was just playing it onto a VGA monitor, and I was having an issue where my first, because how a, a Game Boy was sending out data, it sends it out like four bits at a time. And so, but for some reason on my first cycle, I was losing one of the bits and I had to use a, the log, built in logic analyzers to figure out why it was. And it was just from, I was not resetting the, cause I was in the state machine and I was not resetting the state machine. Right. And it's just one of those things where it's just really hard to catch something. It took me like probably a whole week of afternoons to find that hmm. little thing. Yeah. It can be really challenging, especially if you don't have the, in, the built in logic analyzer because everything's opaque, you know, it's just like a regular microcontroller where there's nothing to really look at in the middle. Yeah. It's just, here's the inputs, here's the outputs, outputs. good luck, you yep. know, and, and the integrated logic analyzers can make that a lot easier yeah. to try to find stuff. And it's one of those things where like you make it, well, cause this is when I didn't have simulation. So I'd make a change and hit go and you go, okay, I'm gonna go walk the dog around the block, be back and be done, test it. Oh, that didn't fix it. Change something else, go do dishes come back later <laughs> so you get like three four changes a night and then you're like well gotta wait till tomorrow to keep working on this thing and if it's long <laughs> enough in between you come back and you're like well that didn't work but what was it i did again i don't yeah, know exactly. i can't really remember so <laughs> i have had that problem too and again that's another good reason for the simulation though yeah. right is if you simulate you can see everything you know you've got the god view right you can drill down as deep as you want you can look at everything you can look in the past you can look in the future so yeah. highly <laughs> recommend the simulations yeah, I'm gonna have to start using that stuff more. I'm actually probably gonna try to get my my ice stick working. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, we've got a great series on that. I mean, well, I'll say that I wrote it, so I'm. I think it's great. <laughs> so Hackaday's uh, gonna no, give us a shirt too. Right? I think. I think. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I, we'll I, get a shirt I, that I says Al Williams on it. <laughs> I, should have, I should have brought you guys a shirt. Um, but you know, I think the last podcast we did, the Heinz podcast 57, I think we actually talked about that. That was my favorite comment on a video was on one of those videos the comment was gosh i wish you'd been my verilog instructor in school <laughs> <laughs> i was like i'll take that yeah, yeah that's <clears throat> a really good one um that's actually um when i was in school i we did dhdl to learn digital logic stuff and fpgas isn't part of the normal um curriculum at least at ut when i was there but at the end i took vlsi which is like designing actual chips and stuff and so right. we actually um did it all on FPGAs, which is kind of funny thinking about that way. Um, but <laughs> the professor's like, so we're going to learn Verilog because that's what you actually use in real life. <laughs> yeah, I've heard in Europe VHDL is more popular commercially, but I haven't been able to prove or disprove that. But for the government stuff, VHDL is pretty popular. And then everywhere else I've been, it's all been Verilog. So, so I wonder why that, why that is. Not sure. Because um, academic is VHDL too. Yeah. So this was like the only class at, at UT that was doing Verilog. And I mean, VHDL does have some abstract advantages if you really dig into it. But it's like ADA. You know, it's you for that advantage, you get a lot of verbos verbosity, verbosity, however you pronounce that. And 
you, you know, you have a lot of issues with that. If And again, I, even though I've written a lot of ADA code in my day, it just doesn't flow off the tongue like the C language does. And granted, like I say, Verilog's not C, but it's close, you know, it's just like Java's not C either, but if you know C, yeah. Java seems to syntactic. You can read it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to, to mess with. And you know, you were talking about doing the custom chips. That's probably a topic for another day, and I, I, wish, we, I wish you guys would get somebody on that had actually done it, because I haven't, but there are moderately affordable chip foundries now right so you can lay out a chip design it and have them made and i think the last time i checked moderately priced was like 10 million dollars oh no 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 no, no. no. it's much cheaper it's than that yeah, in fact actually so uh, a previous boss of mine uh we we talked about it one day and and the way he described it goes if you want one custom chip it's a hundred thousand dollars if you want a hundred thousand custom chips it's a hundred thousand yeah. dollars that's that, that's basically the way he put it seems it like the last I time i looked at it if you were willing to weight and you didn't care about having them packaged i think i convinced myself you could get something really small done for like 10 or twenty thousand dollars. oh wow it's even so, come I mean, down since so, so don't get me wrong that's still more than i'm going to design a macro chip but there you go <laughs> uh, but i've often thought that's really cool that that is getting within reach i mean it's still yeah you know i can remember when a computer in your house was ten thousand dollars and there were a few people that had those too right yeah so, and then it gets cheaper so and like I say, that's not at the current technology limits and everything else. But would those be ASICs, I would guess? Then? No, I think that's, that's actually that's, fast. That's like okay, legit so die. So legit, f okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so like, ASICs must be even cheaper than that then now. Uh, yeah, if you could find somebody that would make them in those quantities. I don't know. I haven't looked at that, so yeah. I, I'm talking out of school here. But uh, but I have looked at the cost of doing the analog chip, or you know, not analog, but just the straight-up chips. And it's it's getting where you could afford it if you really wanted it bad enough. We looked into it for a quick second because we had an entire product that was built on three separate PCBs, and we realized that the, everything, literally the entire thing, could be compressed into a single chip with all of the configuration uh, abilities. So it was just mainly the external stuff was just simple passives to deliver power to it. So it was it was getting to the point where raising an eyebrow and was like, could we actually put this all on one chip? But then you're you're subject to your own quantities of your own chip and it just there's a lot of things you have to pass uh or check boxes in order to make sure you need your own chip yeah oh i agree i mean it would be one of those look at what a tough macho hacker uh, things i am and and 10 grand still a little much for that but uh i don't know it's it's interesting too i mean we see people do amazing things in garages and stuff so i keep waiting for you know that's that's got to be where we're going to make something like a a 709 op amp that kind of technology that's probably getting where people could almost do that in their garage in some way oh man we're, we're going to get boutique op amps oh yeah. yeah well jerry ellsworth had that uh, that video where she's making mosfets in her living room right. you know yeah and so. we've seen some other examples of people making their own stuff like that so you know that would be kind of interesting though maybe you could uh, just like the the people cater to the audio market going you know oh well this uh, tube amplifier sounds better or the the oxygen-free cables, you know, that's the one I really like. Nitrogen injected. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So maybe that's our new next business is, uh, you know, these are the Parker op amps. And yeah. uh, they have a definite different flavor than the Al op amps. It's this you know? really crappy sheer piece of silicon with bond wires randomly placed on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the 12, AWG-12 bond wires. Right? Yeah, yeah. There we go. Not even gold bond wires. They're just <clears throat> copper. So I don't know. But, I mean, that would be a great challenge, right, is to actually – fabricate something simple like that in the uh and and I, I can't believe we're not close to where you could do that if you really wanted to 
I, I, I took a couple classes on that in college and we got to use what was a pretty high-tech fab in the late 70s we got to use the the equipment from that time to build our own chips and out of an entire class of people building chips each student had their own wafer with 150 chips on it we got like 10 working mosfets out of out of many many thousands right. of mosfets so like i have an appreciation for like how difficult that yeah, your is your yield's not good at oh yeah 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 so and and we followed the instructions more, but you can charge more money though <laughs> oh yeah 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 they're that good yeah they're, well see in the, <laughs> they actually work in the 80s that was my job is i used to take apart microprocessors for motorola that hmm. had failed so we did the opposite we tore them apart under the microscope and that was actually a fun job um they, uh, you know, the technology was such, I don't know how they would do it now, but back then you could drop a needle down on the die and probe it. And, you know, that was actually a re and we'd cut, you know, cut traces and probe and uh, do a lot of interesting things like that. But so I know a lot about tearing them apart. I don't know about building them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're not easy. Difference between a civil engineer and a, and a, it'd a be like a, engineer. It'd be like a fancy restaurant where you get deconstructed, like, die for your... Maybe that maybe that joke didn't work. You uh, get deconstructed cake, deconstructed which is like, tacos, which is like oh yeah, deconstructed tacos. Like you get the shell and like the lettuce and the meat. Oh. Everything's all separated out in your plate, and you kind of eat it separately. Build your own integrated circuit. Is yeah. That it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Except it's like dust in a bag, basically. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, now that would be a good pet rock kind of uh, gag gift for the yeah. techie. Is a, a bag of sands is make your own semiconductor. Yeah. Well, right. no, it's the ch 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 chia chip, right? <laughs> <laughs> That could go viral, right? The bag of sand, make your own microprocessor. Yeah. You know, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Not everyone has a quartz uh, uh, furnace in their garage, <laughs> you know, and a, and a tank full of uh, yeah, a tank full of slain and everything else. Right? Yeah, all the nasty chemicals you need. Mm -hmm. Yep. Great. Well, sounds good. So, are you ready to go tackle the uh, FPGAs, Stephen? You know, I I am. I I I'm very curious about using them. The the thing that the thing that I think I need to prove to myself that I see the benefits of them. I see a, a handful of things that that are just awesome, and they they seem to be incredible. I just need to do it for myself to really get a feel for it. Because what I look at is a lot of the projects that come up into my head just don't require what an FPGA would right. be. But so I need to dream up a project that needs the power an FPGA can give to me. So maybe I'll do that. Super synthesizer. You know, I, 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 earlier in the podcast, I actually thought about that. I was wondering, like, could I synthesize a synthesizer in an FPGA? And the answer, of course, is probably yes. But that seems like a whole hell of a lot of work. Well, we've seen uh, what's the famous synthesizer from the Commodore? Uh, the SID chip? Yeah, it's 82. Uh, I don't what know. Carbon-based life forms has that song that uh, is named after that synthesizer. And I can't remember the name of it. But anyway. And there's another T-shirt, right? Carbon-based life forms. Um, <laughs> but if, if we're you, just name dropping all of we stuff. are, you know, it's <laughs> terrible. You know? I had lunch with Jackie the other day. Oh yes, that's the one. But <laughs> <laughs> that joke worked better when she was alive. But um, you know where they did that all on FPGA because apparently those are unobtainable or you know very mm -hmm. expensive to get now. And uh, that they're very popular with the people who are doing synthesizer music. And so. it's really funny with those chips because when if you ever use it in some project, people say you shouldn't use that that chip because of blah 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 blah. But it's like if he wasn't using it, it'd just be sitting in a drawer somewhere collecting dust. So, right. yeah. 
I have a few of those, though. Not those chips, but I have a few where I'm like, gosh, do I really want to use that? It's the last one I'm ever going to have. Yeah, you know? it's actually really funny because um, you, you work, you did Motorola 68K stuff. I have a friend that collects motherboards with 68Ks on them, so he's got like 40 motherboards, just all different, like arcade machines, mm-hmm. one-off computers, stuff like that, just like tons of them. But it's like the same thing. If you need a 68K, get, go to his house with a desoldering iron and have at it i have a couple of ceramic 68,000s <laughs> with the you know with the gold lid and everything sitting in my bench somewhere so yeah it's uh those were fine chips they a lot of the 68 008s had uh a very obscure bug you should mention to your friend i'll tell you about that <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them went out with that obscure bug so don't ask me how i know that <laughs> <laughs> oh cool um I think this is going to wrap up the podcast, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, great. Well, thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, thanks it was a lot of fun. We're going to have to have um, have you back on for another topic. I think we should just build an IC live on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, that would be cool. <laughs> it would just like electron beaming into the silicon I think it, with the impact to do the foley so you could have like pounding on a forge and <laughs> <laughs> chains and I don't know, a Jacob's ladder sound or something. We'll have to get the sound effects lined up. Oh, for that. Yeah. yeah. And then just like poof it's done (laughs) i think there's a really awesome video where like they're like designing a product and it's just like there's two guys in like lab coats this is really hard to describe on the podcast and like two guys in lab coats and they just go throw some smoke down and it's like poof and there's a circuit board (laughs) and like done that's not how you guys do it (laughs) i wish that's what the reflow oven does sometimes it feels like that Except that's that when it goes poof, that's not a good thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> we try to avoid the poof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, Al, would you like to uh, sign us out? Well, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Al Williams. Actually, I still am. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and we're your guest, Park, uh, host, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic that you want Stephen and I to discuss, tweet us at MacroFab or email us at podcast at MacroFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button that's on the website. That way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us on iTunes. It helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.